You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. I have thought it right to reprint in a cheap form this excellent list of doctrines, which were subscribed to by the Baptist ministers in the year 1689. We need a banner because of the truth. It may be that this small volume may aid the cause of the glorious gospel by testifying plainly what are its leading doctrines. May the Lord soon restore unto his Zion a pure language, and may her watchmen see eye to eye. Those words by Charles Spurgeon were in the preface to a new publication of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith in October 1855. And what we hear there is that for Spurgeon, a confession of faith acts as a banner over the church declaring what we believe, teach, and confess. We need a banner, he wrote, because of the truth. And this banner, Spurgeon believed, would help in the advance of the gospel in his generation by declaring the Bible's leading doctrines. Now, in addition to this, Spurgeon saw the 1689 Baptist Confession as one of the great means of unifying the church and her pastors. Indeed, the church's watchmen must see, as he says, eye to eye, if they would shepherd well God's people. Well, Michael, as you well know, over the next couple episodes at least of our uh, broadcast here, we want to take up the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. What is its history? Why is it important? And does it have any utility for the church in our day? Well, I thought we'd begin with the history question. Michael, could you help us understand where did the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith even come from? Yeah, it's uh, great to be with you uh, uh, to talk about uh, this confession. And um, it's probably the most um, important confession in Baptist history, uh, without a doubt. Um, That's it, saying a lot right there. Yeah. You know, we're saying it's, and I would agree with you, but, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um it's not the first of Baptist confessions. Uh, when Baptists emerge in the 1640s, particular Baptists, uh, from which all English-speaking Baptist groups take their take their origin, um, they eventually, within a few a very very short period of time, devise a confession. Uh, in 1644, it's called the First London Confession, to distinguish it from the 1689 Confession which is sometimes described and probably better described in some ways as the second London Confession. So Baptists from the get-go are confessional. Um, recent, more recent Baptist history since the uh, 1800s has given the impression to a lot of Baptists that confessions and creeds are not helpful, that they usurp the place of scripture, that they produce bondage, etc., etc., etc. But that certainly is not an historic Baptist position. An historic Baptist position would be confessional, 
and uh, partly because it comes out of a larger Reformed tradition. Um, are Baptists, broadly speaking, part of the Reformation stream? To be sure, they are. And those churches in the Reformation were creedal. They were confessional. Uh, they confessed the faith that they had embraced. And so Baptists are part of that larger world. And so that's one of the reasons why they're confessional. Um, a second reason is uh, in 1644, uh, Baptists were being confused. Uh, the particular Baptists were being confused with Anabaptists of the previous century. Uh, the Anabaptists were uh, those bodies of um, those communities of believers. And in some cases, actually, um, we would be hesitant to describe them as believers uh, because they are uh, the, uh, some of them denied the Trinity. Um, some of them are uh, would deny the the um, the scriptures as the foundation of their thinking. Uh, they were uh, given to enthusiastic uh, fanaticism, etc. But um, in the 17th century, uh, in London, in the 16 mid 1600s. 1640, some were confusing Baptists with Anabaptists, and that because Baptists, and like Anabaptists, insisted on uh, adult baptism, in fact, a believer's baptism. And um, to counter the argument that they, Baptists, were basically a species of Anabaptism, um, and uh, uh, involved in kind of revolutionary activities, um, holding some of the typical ideas of Anabaptists, which were tended to be um, theologically Arminian, denial of um, total depravity, uh, denial of some of the classic uh, understandings of, of um, uh, sociology, so how we are saved. Uh, the Baptists designed uh, what we call the First London Confession. And that really served them very well uh, from 1644 to 1660, went through five editions. Uh, the 1646 edition, probably the most significant edition. Um, in the 1660s, um, the political situation changes radically for Baptists. Uh, Baptists had enjoyed a degree of, fair degree of liberty in the 1640s, 1650s, because it's the period of the Civil Wars. Parliament uh, wins those, the, the Civil War. And um, the Baptists have liberty to grow. In 1660, the monarchy is restored, and Baptists find themselves under persecution. And it may well have been the persecution, censorship of the press, etc., that prevented any reprinting of the 1644-1646 edition of the First London Confession. It was reprinted three times in the 1650s. Uh, one of them actually in Leith in Scotland, which is very intriguing because Baptists have never, were never thick on the ground in the 17th century in Scotland. But all that, all that aside, uh, by the 1670s, uh, the Baptist confession was very hard to be found. And so it was that, um, and it's probably uh, Nehemiah Cox and William Collins who were the co-pastors or co-elders at Petit France uh, Baptist Church in London, 
Petit France being an area of um, London, that they um, published anonymously in 1677 uh, what we now know as the 1689 Confession or the Second London Confession. So that's one key reason. Uh, the fact that the Baptists were confessional, uh, they needed a confession. The 1644-46 Confession was hard to be found. Um, and thus the decision to reprint. And what they did was they used uh, a confession at hand, which is the, the Westminster Confession of 1646, the Presbyterian document that came out of Presbyterian debates about reissuing a new confession in the mid-1640s. Uh, they took that document, um, as well as another document that came out of it called the Savoy Declaration, which was a Congregationalist document published in 1658, they took those two documents and used them as the basis for what we call the 1677. So those are the immediate historical circumstances, but there are other factors that come into this. There was the growth of Quakerism, which elevated the spirit over the scriptures. Um, it was not present in the 16, mid-1640s. It really emerges 1649, 1650. Uh, the third edition of the 1644 Confession uh, did contain a long appendix in which, um, uh, called Heart Bleedings, in which they addressed the issue of Quakerism, but it was obviously deemed necessary to make some sort of confessional statement. So that's an issue. Um, the uh, Probably the emergence of a kind of hyper-Calvinism, uh, rejecting the free offer of the gospel um, is also in the background. But probably the most significant other historic factor is the defection of a key Baptist leader named Thomas Collier. Thomas Collier had originally come from London. He was part of the church of a man named William Kiffin, a very famous Baptist leader in the period. And um, he, was, he was known as a great Baptist preacher in the West Country of England in the counties of Somerset, Devon, Wiltshire. And um, in the 1660s, began to go show very odd, or began to preach odd things. Um, denied some of the essentials of what would be broadly Reformed theology. Um, uh, had various questions about things that he had formerly preached. And so the 1677 confession then, uh, Nehemiah Cox was a major interlocutor with um, Thomas Collier. And um, he is also, Nehemiah Cox, the, one of the figures behind the 1689 confession. And so the 1689 confession then grows out of um, uh, a response to Thomas Collier and making very clear that these Baptists, who we call particular Baptists, are indeed part of the stream of the Reformation. This incredible history, Michael, I think a lot of our listeners would be shocked, perhaps, for lack of teaching, so no blame on them, but they just probably haven't heard that, number one, Baptists in the 17th century were overtly uh, confessional and wanted to be confessional, and that was intentional from the beginning with the Baptists in England. Uh, 
And then the second thing is that they were making an intentional effort with 1644 and then the rehearsals of this, you said five editions up until Mm -hmm. 1650 something. So, but to purposefully put themselves Baptist, that is in the mainstream of the reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I think students of Baptist history initially don't see those two things, but you would say those are very important in understanding our Baptist history, confessional from the get-go, and, and and intentionally trying to position ourselves within the Reformed tradition. Yeah, I think um, that, well, there is a there is another Baptist group that needs to be taken note of. They're known as General Baptists. Um, they're a very small group. They basically die out in the quagmire of Unitarianism in the 18th century. Um, and so the particular Baptists are the Baptist group from which all English-speaking Baptists take their rise, uh, whether or not they agree with Calvinism today. So uh, they were by far the more numerous. Uh, they are very clearly Reformed, and they're very clearly confessional. I think mm-hmm. part of the problem today, I think, with this issue is that during the 19th century, you get this great push on soul liberty. And that becomes kind of a a mantra all through the 20th century, uh, both by Mm -hmm. people that we would regard as conservative uh, evangelicals uh, in Baptist circles, um, very committed to the autonomy of the local church to the point of of, um, complete independence. Um, But also the, the whole liberal development within say, Southern Baptist life in the 20th century, uh, they exalt soul liberty. Soul liberty becomes the the prism through which they understand Baptist life. For them, to be a Baptist is to be committed above all to be to soul liberty, which means in their minds, the liberty to, you know, if you want to, if you want to disbelieve the resurrection of the body, if you want to question the miracles of Jesus, if you want to say the virgin birth didn't take place. Well, all of the all of these get put under the rubric of soul liberty. And how dare you uh, question their, abil- their, their right to be a Baptist? Because after all, they're, 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 they, in essence, being a Baptist is to affirm soul liberty. And that's all they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And you've, not no, you've yeah. got no right to tell them they can't be a Baptist or can't teach at a Baptist school or can't pastor a Baptist church or whatever. But what and of course, soul liberty just in essence is is contrary to a confession, right? So if if you believe in soul liberty, how could you subscribe to a confession? Well, in, they a, see a at confession least in the way that, as an yeah, sorry, uh, at least in the way that they no. come to define it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Now this is you were saying in the 19th century this really started to be propagated. So it would have been in spite of, for example, Spurgeon's efforts. So soul yeah. You know, he was he was trying to ground the church in these leading doctrines that are seen so clearly in this 1689 Baptist Confession. Again, him giving the preface to a a new edition in 1855. Of course, as you 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 know, I mean, so at the end of his life, uh, he has this huge battle called the downgrade controversy. I was going to bring that up. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And And so this would be part of that. Yeah, I suspect so. I suspect that. Uh, the men that he's battling there would have been deeply affronted uh, to be told, I mean, you can't be a Baptist. Uh, of course we're Baptists. Uh, yeah, we don't right. believe we don't believe in the virgin birth. We've got problems about, you know, 
there's one figure called Isaiah. Aren't there two or three and whatever? Uh, mm-hmm. But we're Baptists. Of course we're Baptists. We believe in soul liberty. Um, yeah. And and here's Spurgeon trying to point to a confession of faith uh, that is in so many ways echoing the Westminster standards. And you're right, Baptists in that era, he was he was up against a, a vigorous uh, propagation of soul liberty that would be anti-confessional, I would think. I mean, yep. it, it would have to be. It's yep. too constraining to have a confession bind my conscience, as it were. You know, you've got, I forget the hymn, you've got that in that, that, that hymn, not in device or creed, uh, that little mm-hmm. line, uh, that my soul is resting. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, of course, I mean, my, our, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not in a written statement of faith. It has to be a living faith. But that living faith has to express itself in the formulations that the church has deemed to be orthodox down through the years. And um, the church in, the, in, in, in its long history um, has affirmed certain things to be true. And uh, well, I, as, as, yeah, as Spurgeon came to realize, if I agree with a man on the issue of believer's baptism, but disagree with him in 90% of everything else. I mean, what fellowship do I have with this guy? I don't really have yeah. any fellowship with him. And he's, you know, he might call himself a Baptist, but he, he historically is not even a Christian. Whatever That's he might right. be. That's right. That's right. Well, Michael, I, we could easily turn this into an episode on Spurgeon. We I could, just, yeah. I love the thought of talking about Spurgeon. But I want to get get uh, back to the title of this confession that we're going to be taking up over the next at least couple episodes 1689. There's something else in the history of of England that happened in 1689. Why is that part of the title? What happened in 1689? Something about an act of toleration. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so um, in uh, 1677 is when it first comes out. Uh, it comes out anonymously, so the title page has no names on it. And it was not known that it was uh, drawn up in London by these two pastors. Um, in 1688, there is a coup d'etat um, uh, that takes place in England. The king at the time was James II, who was an overt Catholic, Roman Catholic. And the British throne, the English throne, rather, had been clearly designated as a Protestant throne. Uh, the king of England or queen of England was to be a Protestant. And um, they were able to tolerate the the ruling class, the aristocracy and parliamentary leaders were able to tolerate James until he had a child, a son. And at that point, they knew that there there was uh, a Roman Catholic heir in the wings, and they were looking at almost definitely a um, a Roman Catholic uh, dynasty. And so uh, the powers that be in England uh, got in touch with uh, James II's uh, daughter and son-in-law. His daughter Mary was married to his uh, to a man named William of Orange, Dutchman, and um, essentially they engineered a coup d'état um, in 1688, November the fifth, um, which was a propitious day because that was the same day 
that the same uh, many about almost a century earlier that they had discovered the plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament by Guy Fawkes, who was a Catholic conspirator and tried to kill the king at the time, James I. And um, so um, uh, William landed with an army in Devon on November the 5th, Torbay, marched on London. Uh, James fled without a shot. Um, it was known as the Glorious Revolution. Uh, bloodless, uh, at least initially. Uh, James fled to France, and uh, once he got to France, he thought, uh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I should at least put up a bit of a fight. And so uh, troops are landed in, in Ireland, Irish being heavily Catholic, and there is an attempt to retake the throne, which fails. But that's a little, that's another story. But uh, James, uh, William, rather, William III will pass this act of toleration in 1689. And, and what does that allow? So now what's so different now? The, now Baptists are not going to be persecuted, right? If Because they're not, obviously, this isn't Church of England we're talking about. Right. So it what it does is it enshrines religious pluralism within the legal framework of the English nation and Welsh, nation, uh, England and Wales. And um, it's a very, very important act because it guarantees religious liberty. And it stands behind written and unwritten commitments to religious liberty in Anglophone, English-speaking nations, including America, um, mm -hmm. down through the centuries. And it really, in some ways, I think, indicates that the most critical liberty that we we have and we need is religious liberty. And when religious liberty mm -hmm. is infringed, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar, freedom of the press, freedom of the right to assembly, all of these others are going to be uh, going to fall pretty quickly. So um, with the advent of the, the, um, the enshrinement of liberty for Baptists, as well as Quakers, Presbyterians and others, and there were some really weird groups, you know, the Muggletonians, for example. Hmm. Um, they, they all... I've never heard of the Muggletonians. Oh, yeah, Ludovic Muggle... Muggletonians. Yeah, Ludovic Muggleton and his cousin John Reeve were the two, witness, uh, two witnesses of Revelation 12, uh, so they said. Oh. Uh, they're, they're a little group that I, I find very fascinating. But anyway, uh, Baptists were now free <laughs> to gather <laughs> congregations... As long as they registered the building where they worshiped with the state authorities and there were some other uh, uh, restrictions but they essentially they were free to be Baptists and um, uh, in September of 1689 uh, William Kiffin and Hansard Knowles two very uh, very um, uh, important Baptist leaders in London who had <coughs> basically persevered in Baptist convictions since the 1640s, they, both of those men had signed the 1646 First London Confession. Um, they called a meeting, um, a nationwide meeting of Baptists, and about a, we're told about 100 churches sent representatives. Um, and they issued, uh, they declared that their confession of faith was the sixth, was what we call the 1689, the Second London Confession. But the second printing was done in 1688. 
So printed 1677, 1688, it was printed a second time and then signed by all these representatives in 1689. So it's known as the 1689, but the actual printing is 1688. Um, okay, but see, that's helpful so people know. I could just see someone new to Confessions of Faith and maybe new to our Baptist heritage would say, what what's the significance of 1689? So... Uh, Per usual, Michael, you've put it in historical context for us. And now we know why it's it's not out of place to have that 1689 there. But uh, it didn't go through a fundamental change. No. It was just a reprinting. It's, it's it. a complete exactly. reprinting. And it's identical. Uh, as far <laughs> as I know, it's identical with the 1677 uh, printing. That's great. Yeah. And I find it fascinating. You had mentioned, Michael, that uh, this, this act of toleration, uh, religious pluralism or religious liberty, had ripple effects, not you know, well beyond England and Scotland, but across the pond into America. In the 18th century, uh, there was a, an association of Baptists in America that adopted what is in essence the 1689 Baptist Confession, and we would trace that to what city? Uh, Philadelphia. So this is 17 Philadelphia. Yeah, 1742. Yeah. Um, the Philadelphia Association, which is probably the oldest association in America. Mm -hmm. All Baptists, founded 1707, they adopt the Second London Confession as their confession of faith. Uh, they add a couple of articles. They add one on the necessity of singing hymns, and they add one on the necessity of laying on of hands upon those who are baptized to receive a further endowment of the Spirit. They make that laying on of hands optional, right? No, in Philadelphia. no I don't think so. Uh, okay, they, I'd have to. Yeah, that's a good question. We'll, we'll, we'll solve yeah, that in a, it. in a subsequent. Uh, we'll talk. have to. Yeah, did yeah. they require the Philadelphia I, I, or make I, that option? No, I think they required it because. <laughs> okay, I thought they were parting with the requirement. We'll have to. No, good no, no. I, I, I'm pretty certain they they indicate that this is to be done for a further okay. endowment okay. of the spirit, because when the confession <clears throat> is taken up among the first. Baptist Association in the South, which is the Charleston Association. Yes. The, and they they take the confession, they reprint the the uh, 1742 Philadelphia Confession, which, as I said, is in essence the 1689. They do not reprint those two articles. They drop, they go back to the original 1689 and drop the two articles that the Philadelphia Association had added in 1742. Okay. Okay. So even we're 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 really shaking up some people's his, understanding of Baptist history, Michael. You're saying even early American Baptists, oh yeah, they, were intentionally confessional, oh yeah, and reformed. Yeah, the old the <laughs> oldest Baptist association in the South, the Charleston Association, uh, based at First Baptist Charleston, which was founded in the 1680s, it is confessional and reformed. Well, Michael, we, we're going to spend a few episodes on this, but I think this is an appropriate place to break this this particular episode. You've yeah. done so well to give us the history yeah. of the 1689 all the way up uh, across the pond, then into America, Charleston, Philadelphia, uh, Baptist Association, continuity here among Baptists from England over here. And I want to maybe we'll take up in future uh, episodes as well, the relationship of Scotland. You said it earlier tonight or today in this episode. I never associate Scotland with Baptists. 
and I, you know, I thank John Knox for that. But you're saying there was a Baptist, <laughs> there was, you know, influence there. Yeah, yeah. initially so. uh, in the 1650s, it would be because it would have been because of Oliver Cromwell's armies. Cromwell mm-hmm. finds himself having to fight Scottish Presbyterians. He pled with them not to, but he fights them at the Battle of Dunbar. Well, I remember the first time my wife and I, as a married couple, went back to England. We we went to Dunbar. I dragged my poor wife to Dunbar so we could we could see the site of the battlefield. And I, what I remember though most vividly is uh, one of the things I most remember is uh, we had to we couldn't find a restaurant. We had to, to do a takeaway of fish and chips, eating them, watching the North Sea in the middle of July, freezing cold, pouring rain in the car. Uh, eating a, a chippy takeaway. Um, anyway, yeah. See, your your wife loves you. She goes to battlefields she, uh, with you. Battlefields and, and she does cemeteries. Take out. <laughs> <laughs> See, you are blessed among men. That is wonderful. Well, Michael, next week I want to I want to start. Maybe we could do this, and we'll we'll tell our listeners this. Let's start with asking: Are confessionals biblical? In other words, you know, is there biblical warrant? for something like a 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And so we'll start there, and I'll look forward to that episode with you. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.